The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It is Wednesday, December the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today, UCC political scientist, Dr. Theresa Reedy. You're very welcome. Lovely to be here. Pat Leahy, our political editor. It's lovely to be here, Hugh. And Jennifer Bray from our political team. It's also great to be here. Oh, great. Good you're all so happy. I'm guessing you're all so excited because, you know, we cover a lot of bases in this politics podcast. We cover everything from the democratic process to the impact of policy on people on the ground to constitutional changes. But we do like a good piece of high politics. And uh, Pat, I found Westminster very exciting yesterday. I know that Brexit is supposed to be, you know, boring everybody to tears. But there were these huge political moments yesterday. There was, first of all, the news came through that uh, th- that the UK probably has the right to unilaterally withdraw Article 50, which may or may not have some, some significant consequences. Then you had, the, I think, the unprecedented historical moment when the, uh, the government, the UK government, was found to be in contempt of Parliament because it wouldn't release um, legal advice in relation to the withdrawal agreement. And then you had what may prove maybe to be the most important thing, which was the Dominic Grieve Amendment, which gives Parliament, at least in theory, some element of say in what happens should the current uh, proposal not pass next week, next Tuesday. That was an awful lot of high politics in one day. Yeah, I mean, these are truly historic events, I think. You know, often when we're trying to make sense of politics, and often, and obviously we follow it day by day, but when you're trying to make sense of it, it's sometimes hard to see what is truly significant from what is merely interesting or the story of the day. But these events that are taking place in Westminster will define the UK's relationship with the European Union for the foreseeable future. And that is, you know, that is a massive deal for the United Kingdom. It's a massive deal for the EU. And it's also a massive deal for us. So, you know... I mean, how many histories of Ireland written, uh, uh, histories of Ireland in the latter half of the 20th century draw attention to the impact of EU membership and what a historic move that was for us? Well, what is happening over in uh, in the UK at the moment is a matter of uh, of equal import, I think. Yesterday, I mean, there's been the Brexit saga. I'm sure lots of people are, are, are sick of it. I find it, I find it fascinating. And there's, you know, there's news every day of it. But what happened yesterday, I think, was one of the most significant things that has happened on a par with the decision to leave the, uh, uh, the Lancaster House speech that Theresa May set out the sort of Brexit that she wanted, her speech to the Tory party conference uh, last year, these sort of signal moments in the process. And I think what happened yesterday in the, um, uh, the House of Commons votes that you referred to earlier is that the, this is a weak government and the House of Commons is asserting, I think, its power vis-a-vis that uh, that government. So what was significant was not just 
that the House found uh, the government to be in contempt of it, but that the government then meekly said, OK, we will do what you say. And that was followed then by the Dominic Grieve Amendment, which essentially set out that if this vote fails next Tuesday, as, as it is expected to do, that uh, that the House essentially will then chart its way, uh, chart the way forward for the government, and I think that is uh, a really significant moment because if you look at the disposition of forces in the House, it's often said that there's there isn't really a majority for anything. There might be a blocking majority for uh, for lots of proposals, but the House is a good deal more remaining. It's certainly. Uh, a good deal more soft Brexity, to put it that way, than the government is. And that, I think, will be important. Theresa, do you agree with that? And do you agree with the general analysis that's happened over the last 12 hours or so that the prospects of a, a disorderly exit, a no-deal Brexit in, in next March, have receded somewhat as a result of what happened yesterday? Well, I think the no-deal scenario has probably receded a little bit because the, the, in, the thing about Dominic Grieve's amendment is it's not going to be binding on the government, but it will have to carry a huge moral weight. And you'd, especially in a scenario where a no deal Brexit is actually approaching, you'd have to imagine that a, a moral majority and an actual majority in Westminster would carry some weight and force them down at least some other alternative avenue. But I don't know what that would other alternative avenue are this morning it's and all I think nobody, Norway I think plus nobody plus does. or will we have mm. another referendum um, I, I think the, the idea of a general election is I, I think it's likely but I think the idea that it could solve anything is receding so so yeah. that's kind of certainly kind of into the into the, the, the background I mean, it, may, it may not but, be strictly speaking binding uh, the no, but it is a moral. Has, but it, it carries moral but, weight. But it carries, but it yeah. carries kind of legal weight as no. well because the, the the government can only govern with the consent of the house. And when the house withdraws, as a fundamental principle of parliamentary democracy, that the government is accountable to the house. And if the house is, if the parliament is flexing its muscles, then that limits the government's freedom from manoeuvre. But I suppose the difficulty in all of this is the timetable, because. I mean, the, the the vote is on Tuesday was the 11th of December. Um, for any deals to go through, the European Parliament have to endorse them. Those votes have to take place um, in February slash early March of next year. So we're kind of walking back a timetable and clarity needs to, the, 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 I don't know, the, the, the clouds need to recede and there needs to be a moment of clarity. But there is no clarity, understand. is there? I mean, if the Pat is saying think, that, you know? that the House of Parliament is asserting its authority, the, the settled, there is no settled view yeah. in, in the House of Parliament, despite its perhaps slightly more remain inclinations than the, than the country as a whole, or certainly than, than the government. It's not clear to me that the, that the House of Commons has a, you know, has a majority on any option. And I think that's why maybe you'd say no deal has receded, but I wouldn't take it off the table entirely because there isn't any great uh, clarity about what alternative avenue can be pursued and as you get closer and closer to a deadline um, you know the pressure will mount I suppose there is the expectation that, that the EU will step in and extend the um, Article UK 50, has to ask they for have to the... ask for that and, and I think there have well, to actually, be well actually we now learn from yesterday's although albeit it's not a judgement but the uh, opinion of the Advocate General that the UK can unilaterally do that well, but unilaterally withdraw. There is a qualification, but, but, but the, though. It has it, to be in good it, faith. It can't unilaterally extend it, can it? No, no, it can withdraw it. it can withdraw it. But, withdraw but, it, but, but it, there is a qualification as well, so though. Brexiteers were suggesting yesterday that it could withdraw it and then reactivate it. 
No, because I think there was a discussion as well that said that in good faith that, that, that you can't actually, that that's not going to be tolerated, that you could turn it on and turn it off again and have internal conversations, um, that, that some kind of decision will have to be taken as to what the what Great Britain actually intends to do full stop, that they're not going to be allowed to actually do that. Very specifically, there's an awful, an awful but, lot. I mean, this is not entirely clear yet marks, because we're I mean, a lot of these questions it's, it's only an opinion the, over the next yeah. week or so. And in fact, we'll, same time, same place next week because we'll be here next Wednesday morning, and things will be slightly clearer. If maybe not, maybe not completely clear. Is, I, I don't think we should lose sight of though the, the the kind of the extent to which something very important happened yesterday. Yes. It's not just a case of oh, we'll be here next week talking about the same thing. Something very important that will affect how this plays out happened yesterday, and it does, as Teresa says. Uh, I, I think mean that a no deal Brexit, which I always thought was unlikely, though the chances were increasing in recent times. Uh, I think that is, um, uh, I think that is significantly less likely after yesterday. Yeah, and that also showed two other two things, especially that the fact that Theresa May suffered three pretty devastating defeats shows kind of definitively that you know uh, she doesn't have a majority, and the fact that they uh, her own Tory MPs crossed the floor to vote against the government so that they be in contempt of parliament shows that they don't have confidence either. You don't have majority and you don't have confidence. Surely all signs would point towards an election. Well, one of the things I find fascinating about this is the way in which traditional party affiliations are breaking down and are reforming themselves in different ways. From one great parliamentary debate to another, you were up in Tullallars, up in Leinster House last night, Jennifer. Yeah, I'm kind of surviving lately on sort of this mix of caffeine, salpidine and uh, industrial sort of multivitamins. Um, but we yeah, do have biscuits here as well. Yeah, yeah, Sounds I'm going to get stuck into those as soon as as soon as we're not on air. But um, yeah, uh, the doll um, sat until half eleven last night uh, to continue to debate the regulation of uh, ter- uh, termination of pregnancy bill. What happened yesterday was basically that uh, the debate was resumed, but two new amendments were added um, by the anti-abortion TDs. The effect of these amendments would have meant that doctors would have had to by law, uh, collect information from women such as their ethnicity, their age, their marital status, um, previous reproductive history such as stillbirths, births um, or previous terminations. Now, anybody could guess that that would be contentious in the dull, and it was. And it led to probably some of the most fractious exchanges that we've seen. We had at the very, very end of the debate, the Fine Gael TD, Kate O'Connell, stood up and told Maddie McGrath that he should be ashamed in front of the women in his life while the anti-abortion TDs such as Patrick Tobin and Carl Nolan were kind of saying that the debate has become incredibly personalised against them. The one thing that is guaranteed to set them all off are the back and forth claims of filibustering. Now, there is filibustering. Um, whether, you know, the, the argument keeps coming up of every TD has the right to submit an amendment and every TD has that democratic right and I don't think anybody is denying that. But when you put in amendments which are you know will be divisive and will... Let's say arouse emotions. I mean, what do you expect except fractious exchanges? So, you know, today it'll be back up before the doll and they'll be discussing conscientious objection, which is a huge issue. And they'll also be discussing a very, very um, sensitive issue on the uh, disposal of fetal remains. Now, that is going to be a very, very difficult debate. The hope is that they can get through it without suspending the House too often or, you know, in a fairly dignified manner and pass the bill, uh, the landmark bill, by tonight. Um, It's scheduled to sit until, as far as I know, half 11 again. But um, everyone is hoping, especially me, that it'll finish (laughs) around nine. What do you make of this process, Theresa? Yeah, I mean, I think... 
that TDs have have kind of two things to to do. They're there to scrutinise legislation, but they're also there to represent and advocate. You know, the the voice of the people that they they represent. And I think we're now really in the latter stages of the legislative process, and this is really about scrutinising the legislation. The kind of decision has been taken, and and in any kind of realistic way, the extent to which they can represent the views of others is it, that that ship has sailed. You know, there there really was a very decisive and, and clear uh, clear result. So I think this is really just politics at this point. They're they're just you know seeking some final publicity because this discussion is over. This debate um, has been had. The legislation um, is going to pass through, and whether it's the first of January or the fifteenth of January, you know the, the this has uh, this has passed. I think what's going to be interesting is what happens once um, once the abortion bill has passed and and we begin to provide abortion services. Uh, where are these TDs going to go? And you know, are we going to see an ongoing kind of politicisation of this issue, or is it going to become um, marriage equality? Is it going to become divorce? All these other issues, which were really contentious until then, they weren't, and they just kind of faded from the agenda. And it's a mixed, it's a mixed situation in other countries. Abortion has remained absolutely virulently political in some places, but in others, it it has depoliticised. And I think that's that's kind of looking into the future. That that's going to be the interesting thing to watch for in, in Ireland. And what do you think about? And I'll come to Pat in a minute because I know he was up in Navan with Patrick Tobin's meeting of a proposed new party, which arose out of his his departure from Sinn Féin because of his position on abortion. What do you think the prospects are of, of this issue, not necessarily being the main plank upon which a, a new party is formed, but being a sort of a springboard in some way? See, I mean, I think the difficulty is that when you're so obviously identified with a single issue, even if this is not like your core platform, one of the things that Renua really suffered from was they, they really were never able to separate themselves from the abortion issue, even with their justice proposals and flat taxes and things, always it came back in, in debates and in discussions at the elections about their position on, on abortion. And they found it very difficult to actually break away from that. Uh, from that. More generally, socially conservative political parties have tended not to do terribly well. And, and there's a long list of them. And at various, after various different referendums, we've also seen lots of kind of uh, people say, oh, well, you know, the referendum vote was X. So there's huge space here and potential for us to move in here and collect votes. And we know that actually people at general elections, they don't really vote on on social issues. If you look at the kind of top five or top 10 issues, even going back to the 1980s, uh, abortion was number nine, number 10. Uh, you know, it's never in, in the top three three. So if your core business is social conservatism, it's really difficult to identify that base and, and, and uh, you know, to, to agitate and, and to be elected. I think there's also a separate kind of problem for creating new political parties in Ireland. And that is that all of the legislation that we brought in to kind of clean up politics in relation to party financing and donations, which were all to deal with per- very particular and acute problems, there is a kind of a law of un- unintended consequences problem here because it's actually made it very difficult to set up a political party. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to actually get resources, uh, to set up an organisation, to to get donations. You can't even use your own money. If you had your own money, you, you can't even do, do that. So it's difficult in this environment for new political parties to, to come forward. And I, I mean, it's, it's a brave thing to do, of course, but um, it's unlikely to be successful. Pat Breed O'Brien was at a meeting of this new organisation in, in Dublin. Uh, she wrote about it last last weekend and she was quite enthusiastic about it because I chimed, I think, very much uh, with her 
combination of political positions, um, conservative on the sort of the culture war issues of the last few years, but also more interested in an economically more egalitarian perhaps party than than, than Renewa offered. Um, do you think there's any space in that? And what what were you hearing in Navan? Was that was that what was being put forward? Well, uh, I suppose the nature of the Irish political landscape at the moment is that it is so fractured. There's always a bit of space for uh, for something new. Um, uh, yeah, I was down at um, Pater Tobin's meeting on Monday night in Navan. Um, it was very well attended. There was, by my reckoning, 300, possibly more people there. It was standing room only in the ballroom of uh, the hotel there. Very engaged crowd. Um, absolutely adulatory response for, uh, for, uh, for Pater Toby. His home ground. Oh, he is the local boy uh, returning, returning home there. Some people I was talking to pointed to just down the road from the hotel we were in was Tobin's Garage, uh, which is, I think is his family, uh, family business. But very enthusiastic response uh, for him for, for all that. I think that... I think that Theresa's insight is the key one, to be honest, that there aren't a great deal of votes in a general election for anti-abortion candidates, for candidates who seek to make a pro-life stance their principal identification. There are there is thirty four percent of people who voted in the referendum voted uh, uh, voted no. There is a minority of the uh, of the yes voters who are uncomfortable with the extent to which uh, of the liberalisation that is uh, that uh, that is proposed. So there are a lot of people. There are a lot of voters who are anti-abortion, are pro-life. But very few of them think it is the most important thing on which to vote in a general election. Was it the most important thing at this meeting, Pat? Was it the the main item on the agenda? Uh, No, it wasn't the main item on the agenda. That was very clear. And Pater Tobin has been at pains to stress that the priorities of his new party will be a united Ireland and economic justice. Now, we know what a united Ireland means. Economic justice is a much more pliable and much looser term that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think that Pater Tobin is an acute enough political analyst to know that there aren't a lot of anti-abortion seats. How do we know this? Uh, It's because uh, pro-life organisations have been trying to get a TD elected since 1992 on a pro-life ticket. They've never succeeded. And if they couldn't succeed in 1992 and in 1997 and in 2002, they're not going to succeed, I think, uh, in in the future in what is a changed country, particularly in, uh, in, in, in respect of this particular issue. That having been said... To go back to my earlier point, I think there is space for something. There is certainly always a hearing for kind of anti-establishment views in Ireland for a, you know, somebody needs to look after. You know, there was amongst the themes in Navin the other night was how Mead is being ignored by Dublin and people cited, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the need for investment in the constituency, for a rail link to Navan, etc., etc. All those sort of things. And you could identify those sort of issues in every constituency and there is a hearing for it. Whether it translates into a slate of candidates that can win seats, I think depends 
on making that case on the ground, but it also depends on identifying prominent local candidates in constituencies where they have a chance of winning a seat. And that is something that Patertoween is a long way away from. It's very, very tough to do. And I wonder as well, Jennifer, you know, where... Where is the gap in the market right now? This this organisation seems to be targeting um, some some element of former Sinn Féin voters and some element of, from their point of view, ideally, former Fianna Fáil voters uh, yeah. in rural areas, peripheral, ex-urban areas, a kind of an Irish version, I suppose, of, you know, the gilet jaune in, in France. Well, I don't know about that, but um, I, I think Pat hit the nail on the head in a way in, in that what... The, the area in the market or let's say the gap that exists is is that, that idea of being ignored. You know, whether you feel that you've been ignored in terms of your views on the Eighth Amendment or whether you feel that you've been ignored in the overall recovery that we're supposedly seeing or whether you feel that your political views are being ignored in terms of Brexit and a united Ireland. If you just hit one of those on the head with people, then, you know, that's an extra vote or that's an extra person that you can get into your party. And, you know, we saw some of that to a certain extent in the United States with the rise of Donald Trump, the idea of people who are left behind, the people who aren't heard. So perhaps that's where the gap in the market is, that perhaps that's the the kind of people that Pat or Tobin is, is targeting, people who even within Fianna Fáil feel ignored by their own party, for example. I mean, Sinn Féin are really in that space, kind of the, the anti-elite, anti-establishment, um, you know, you can't trust the politicians in Dublin. And some of the left-wing socialists are also in that space. So I think it's quite crowded. I mean, what you described, Pat, it chimed to me with kind of um, more of an independent uh, platform, uh, you know, somebody who's left their political parties, kind of like a Blaney Fianna Fáil type relationship. That, I mean, that, when I heard you describing there's that, a lot of votes there. Me, you know. There's a lot of ex-independent votes. Independents in small parties got 30% of the vote in the last general election. They're polling it between 14, 16, that sort of very consistently. So there's a lot of ex-independent small party votes that will be in play in the next general election. Michael McDougall used to uh, to talk about the fortunes of the, the progressive Democrats or the prospects of a new party after the progressive Democrats. He used to say, you know, there's a gap in the market. But is there a market in the gap? So there is, uh, I think what he meant by that is there's certainly... Business Studies 101, that. There's a gap gap there, but is it, there's a gap in the market, but is it of sufficient size, of, is it, is it sufficiently bring homeable that it can return seats? Now, certainly some seats in that space will be, will be returned. Whether Pater Tobin can bring together an organisation that can achieve that, I, I, I think I certainly wouldn't say that it's impossible at this stage, but it's a pretty, pretty much an uphill climb. Well, before we move on to the next subject, I want to ask you one, one question about this, Teresa, because you're, you're the big picture person here. And um, one of the remarkable things, or much remarked upon things about the Irish political landscape is the kind of populism which Jennifer referred to hasn't emerged, except arguably in a kind of a light LITE way in the Peter Casey surge in the last week of the of, of the presidential election. Uh, Breed O'Brien's piece about uh, Patrick Tobin's organisation made the point that, um, that people came to that meeting in Dublin and wanted to raise the issue of immigration as a hot topic and they were rebuffed on that issue. Is that not where the gap in the market is? That if, if, if Ireland is anything like like other Western countries. Yeah, I mean, there probably is a space in the market there. Um, I mean, when we talk about populism, we often talk about it as kind of 
its ideological variants. So we do have left-wing populism in Ireland, undoubtedly. That space is very well filled by um, the AAA and by Sinn Féin and quite a number of the independents are in that space as well. So that's kind of greater redistribution combined with kind of anti-system, anti-elite narratives. Um, on the right of the spectrum, when we look to other European countries, that that generally is anti-immigrant, anti-outgroup. And those views are there. So from the Irish National Election Study in 2016, we, we can show that there's certainly a significant percentage of people who have very very uh, clear anti-outgroup. And we see that expressed uh, to a lesser extent in relation to immigrants in Ireland. But if you look at questions in relation to the travelling community, really there's lots of survey evidence to show that there is very strong um, uh, hostility um, expressed there. Uh, in a way, the reason that we haven't had that actually um, expressed in party political terms is because nobody's gone into that space. And the political parties in the system have actually always kept a lid on it. And Sinn Féin so, has always been a buffer to it, which is a point actually. which has been, been made in this studio in the past. Absolutely. Sinn Féin has been a buffer. Because Sinn Féin, quite a number of their voters, we can actually see it in terms of the, the values that they express uh, actually do have those outgroup sentiments but Sinn Féin don't express it uh, and as a consequence that kind of voice if you want remains somewhat silent within party politics. Um, I mean there are groups though that have established themselves the um, anti- or the Irish exit um, kind of movement people who want to leave the European Union there are also a couple of platforms that are kind of explicitly you know uh, anti-immigrant they have never been able to kind of really move in there and significantly kind of uh, mobilise it uh, mobilise it it, it either. Peter Casey, I suppose, gave more expression to it, but I wouldn't go too far in his his vote either. I mean, he was competing in a space where there was no Fianna Fáil, there was no Fianna Gael, you know, and, and presidential elections are quite uh, are, are quite odd. But those views and values are there, uh, and there is certainly the potential that a political entrepreneur, if it went into that space, could mobilise that and, and express it within, uh, within the, the party system. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic... Or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good. Because there's something you'll always be able to control. Your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution. Giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Pat. Are we living beyond our means? When we look back 10 years' time, will we be, will we be talking about Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar in the same way that people now talk about you know, Bertie Ahern and Charlie McCreevy? There was once a, a Taoiseach uh, who addressed the nation and told him that we were all living beyond our means and it was time to tighten our belts. So I won't go down, uh, I won't go down that road. Um, Just to explain to our listeners, you have a piece about Seamus Coffey, who's the sure, fiscal advisory council, it, but yes, um, who, um, uh, who, who has been you know, most, uh, m- most unhappy with the government over the last week or so. In the yeah, she- Seamus, one of, one of the things uh, that the... Uh, government in the Oireachtas did in the wake of the crash uh, to ensure that nothing like this could ever happen again was that they um, uh, they set up a body called the Fiscal, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which is an independent, essentially fiscal and budgetary watchdog, to which would issue regular reports on the economic management of the uh, of the government. Um, last week. Uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council, which is chaired by uh, Seamus Coffey, who's a, a UCC colleague of uh, of Theresa's, um, 
and they issued a pretty stinging report on the government saying that their budgetary management was imprudent, saying that they were using uh, windfall corporation tax receipts to uh, pay for recurring or to expand public spending in ways that would be uh, would would have recurring liabilities. In other words, that you know you you put this much into the base in the Department of Health and uh, those liabilities recur year after year when your uh, tax receipts from your bumper tax receipts from corporation tax might have uh, might have evaporated. And that is, of course, precisely what happened uh, in advance of the financial crisis, in advance of the, uh, the, the, the economic crisis here precipitated by the world financial crisis when stamp duty revenues so almost stopped overnight and all of a sudden we were left with this huge gap between what was raised in taxation and what the government was committed to in terms of uh, uh, spending uh, and, and day-to-day, day-to-day current spending. Seamus Coffey, uh, who is the man and government appointed to advise them about this has said in his strongest terms yet you've, you've got to pay attention to what's going on here. He's warning and he's asked the reason I'm writing about it today is that he is at an Oireachtas committee in the afternoon, the Budgetary Oversight Committee, uh, when he will be telling them uh, these things in, in pretty stark terms. And he's warning explicitly today that the exact same mistakes which were made in relation to uh, stamp duty and the expansion of public service budgets on the back of that uh, is happening today with corporation tax receipts. Now, when we heard Pascal Donoghue talking about his budget, it was very much framed, Jennifer, as prudent, um, not doing anything to frighten the horses, not terribly exciting was the way it was generally received. And when it came to this question of, you know, paying paying as you go, um, so to speak, he, there was complete denial that there was anything of this sort going on. Any additional expenditure was in capital expenditure rather than recurring. But Seamus Coffey essentially seems to be saying that uh, our health budget is careening out of control, which is something we've known for a while. But now this is being paid for by these windfall corporation tax uh, um, revenues, which could be gone in six months. Yeah, there's two things there. The first one on the overrun, the massive overrun in the Department of Health. Um, what we learned, what we we already knew, to be honest, what we learned during the last budget, um, as Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said, that there is no way to follow the money properly in the HSE. That's why we keep getting all these massive overruns that sort of seem to come out of nowhere, where sort of a billion or nearly a billion has to be found every year and is found. Um, and that the, the problem is keeping track of the various different um, revenue streams or various different where the money is going in the HSE. So there's talking about setting up this new mechanism whereby it would be a reporting mechanism whereby they can keep an eye on overruns. And you would have thought that they would have done that before. But anyway, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, yes, that's definitely the way Pascal Donoghue painted his budget and that's the way Fine Gael paint themselves as a party. Um, prudent, not going to go back to the mistakes of the past, etc., etc. But... If you look at and drill down into the, the figures today, and we've known this as well for a long time, it's the over-concentration uh, in corporation tax on a very small number of companies. Um, I mean, that is alarming because, you know, what would happen if there was, obviously Brexit is going to have different, uh, you know, impacts, but in terms of changing corporate tax levels, I mean, there's no reason, there's no reason why these companies would stay here if the deal wasn't, you know, the best deal anymore. Um, and that the fact that we are so reliant on such a small number of companies for such a huge amount of money um, to put us into this kind of surplus, I just find that alarming. It's very bad practice on a number of fronts, isn't it, Theresa? It's very bad practice, particularly because vo- uh, corporation tax is so volatile. Um, and the, 
I mean, fundamentally, Seamus makes the point that every time there's an overrun in uh, the health system, that overrun is incorporated into the figures for the following year. So each it goes into year, the base, it yes. goes into the base and the base is expanded. So each year, the overrun becomes part of the budget for the following year. And then there's another overrun and that overrun becomes part of the base. So there's a cumulative process. It's basically increasing by a billion a year in the last and three years. The, the health system is becoming a kind of albatross that's uh, around our, around the state. Uh, and it's absorbing all additional space for investment and social investment to the point where the other areas are simply not getting uh, not getting a look in. There are critical deficits in education in relation to physical infrastructure. But whilst the health system is continuing to eat all available space, those areas are not going to, to get a look in. And then the problem on the other side of the house is, is that if these revenues were to disappear, and there are very clear reasons to be worried about the corporation tax revenues. Okay, the digital tax in, coming from the European Union. It looks like that might recede a little bit. I think that the French and the Germans were stepping back from that even earlier this uh, earlier this week. Sorry. But um, there's a protectionism coming from the, the Trump White House. There's potential disruption caused by Brexit. So there are lots of kind of clouds on the horizon that could affect those corporation tax rates and corporation tax receipts, which could see them drop very significantly. But we're still stuck with the health albatross, which is just getting bigger and bigger every year. And that gap will then have to come from other areas of, of taxation. And we haven't brought the tax base in the way that we agreed that we would do after the last uh, the last yeah, crash. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were supposed to expand in property tax much more significantly. We haven't done that properly. In fact, we're narrowing the top property tax base again. Water charges, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But there, there are lots of places where uh, there are vulnerabilities in, in the tax system, which we were very attuned to about three or four years even, ago. Even which income tax is very top heavy. And actually it. came in under um, under expectations yesterday in, in, the, in the figures. So I think Seamus Coffey is absolutely right to be signing these uh, these these warning notes. But one of the things that we're seeing as well, though, is the limitations of the Fiscal uh, Council. Uh, I mean, all they can do is contribute to debate. Now, that's good because we didn't have that 10 years ago. But the, the kind of oversight of the budgetary process remains a political but, but, process. But ultimately, yes, but be, it's a political, these are political choices. James Coffey doesn't write the budget, Pascal Donoghue writes the budget, and we elect Pascal Donoghue, do and his that. constituents elect him, and then the Dáil uh, proves his appointment as minister. True, but does this not put it up to Pascal Donoghue, though, Pat? I mean, I haven't well, seen well, a coherent it, response to this well, criticism I, yet. I, I, think, I think it does to an extent, and I think in terms of shaping political debate, it makes it much harder for him and for the government to run the uh, the prudent the, the, the prudent Pascal line. I think this is a significant blow to that and I think they're quite stung in government about it. At the same time, you can't take the political context out of this either. The construction of budgets is not merely an economic plan. It's a political exercise. And, you know, when you talk to people in government, they say to you, that's all very fine, but Seamus doesn't have to get re-elected. James doesn't true. have to stand. James Coffey doesn't have to. It doesn't have to stand before his constituents and say, "No, all this extra money that is coming in, I'm going to put it over here in case something happens down the line when we need it. I'm not going to use. I'm going to run a multi-billion euro surplus indefinitely in case nasty things happen in the future, and I'm not going to spend it on these acute, pressing social needs in health and education and housing now." Because that is the choice. If we uh, if we don't want 
to increase the budgets that we're spending in health and education and in housing, uh, uh, then we will deal with the social consequences that uh, that flow but, from that. But so other that's small the context in which the decisions are made, and and I agree with all that. But other small EU member states are running budgetary surpluses, and I think this kind of speaks to a lack of maturity in our budgetary uh, processes and our economic planning that we've still not gotten to grips with this idea that you can't cut taxes and increase expenditure at the same time. It's just not possible. And the Celtic Tiger created this kind of flawed notion in people's minds that these two things can actually I mean, achieve you're, you're, balance. In economic terms, we've you, not you moved can, forward. but not, not, in, not indefinitely. Not, because, not in the political way. Because obviously you end up with, you know, uh, zero income and infinite expenditure, you know, yes. but there is, there is room for, for budgetary tweaking. But let me just ask you about yeah. Theresa's point, that, that in comparison to other small European democracies, we are immature and we keep making these same bloody mistakes over and over again. Is there some validity to that? I think there's something in that. I think that's, you know, that that's not an especially acute uh, 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 political insight. It's merely a... It's, sorry, it's, 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 sorry, I didn't mean it like that. It's, it's, it's simply a, a recounting of history. I mean, in the last, you know, in the last 40 years, there has been three massive crises in the uh, in in the public finances so uh, you know it it it's clear that there is something flawed in the way we do politics or how politics relates to government perhaps is the relationship uh, that we really need to examine and part of that it seems to me is the inability or the unwillingness of politicians in government to say we can we cannot meet every interest group's requirement. There are expansions in public services or in the numbers of public servants which cannot be done uh, uh, immediately no matter the response, no, no matter how loud the clamour from voters is. Now, on an entirely different note, Jennifer, are you a Carly Minogue fan? God, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it lately. <laughs> I'm very fond. Can't get you out of my head. I'm not so not uh, Your best work was I in Neighbours, so really. Ah, uh, well, um, I, I guess I am. Yeah, well, the Taoiseach is apparently because he was he was at Tree Arena, as you as you probably know. I don't know if you read Miriam Lord's piece about yes, him. Yes, excellent. His, I laughed. His I trip to Tree Arena with Kylie got a nice selfie taken. Well, I suppose actually it wasn't technically a selfie because he wasn't holding the camera, but a nice picture taken with Kylie um, either before or after the gig, and then started tweeting about whether or not he had ligged a free dinner along the way and dropped a this, tip. This, What's he at? This stuff is bizarre. So. It's kind of almost like a ray of sunlight yesterday in my day. I was like, what is this? So I was Shun like, oh. into the abortion <laughs> I was sitting there like, okay, let's have a look at this. Scrolling through Twitter and I saw it and I said, oh God. I said, "Who's who said this? This must be somebody who's, you know, well known or someone who has a lot of followers or whatever. And I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find anybody saying anything. And I was like, where is it? So I went on Facebook and I couldn't find it. And I said, this is absolutely bizarre. So a friend of mine texted to me because it had been taken down and it had been shared like seven times. This was a tweet suggesting that the teacher... Facebook, Or a bigger pardon. Yeah. A Facebook post suggesting that, that, that he had done what? So basically that he had gone to the Kylie Minogue gig, that he and a group of his friends and his partner had got a rake of free drinks and um, a free meal and they were waiting on hand and foot and he never even left a tip to the poor waitress. That's what the allegation was. But like I said, it, I can't see that it was shared very much. I, I find it absolutely bizarre that he... Firstly, that he found this, and then secondly, that he kind of went on Twitter to to say I didn't do it. I mean, why would you give oxygen to a totally inaccurate claim? Also, he said he has the receipt to prove it. 
I actually just kind of want to see the receipt. Like, oh, what are they drinking? Like, are they drinking vodka? Like, what does the Taoiseach drink? Like, how stressed out is he? Like, is he drinking double vodka? You heard it here. The Irish Times is demanding to see the receipt. Publish and be damned, I say. Must come clean now. <laughs> the idea of meals at rock concerts is amusing. I, I, I only ever managed to get chips myself. There were, there were no meals. It turns um, out there were no meals. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've, I've darkened the door of the VIP area in Three Arena once or twice, and you do get a bit of a, a you know, a, a few nachos or something like that, you know. Which <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> oh, sounds luxurious. This is the stuff that people want to know. Glamour. We, we want to know what. That's the glamour stuff. Stuff. Yeah. Seriously, though, does it not show him up as a bit of an idiot? It, it. <laughs> Um, it, it, it seems a bit odd that he decided to, to respond. <laughs> I mean, really, you'd hope that he had more serious things to be dealing with uh, on the day. I'm possibly old fashioned on this, but I think not alone is tweeting about uh, attending the Kylie concert and what you may or not have consumed there is most unprime ministerial. But I think going to the Kylie concert in the first place is very unprime ministerial. Oh, well, now we have a younger generation of politicians in power and they have more varied musical tastes than perhaps their predecessors. Would you not go to a Kylie gig yourself, no? I would not. Well, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, Pat, but I mean, would you, for example, have gone to an LCD sound system gig? Because the last time all this kind of thing about Leo going to gigs cropped up and caused a problem was at uh, LCD sound system, who are, you know, very popular band for people in their, I suppose, 35 to 45 demographic? I'm afraid we have traversed the limits of my frame of cultural reference at this point. I'll have I don't to want to know what the last gig everyone went to was now. Just sort of intrigued. Teresa, what's the last gig you went to? The clue will tell you. I've got tinnitus. I don't go to live music at all. Okay. Tinnitus too. I've got to tell you, I went to you too, who I don't even like. Well, that's just not answering. Does right man enough count? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think note. Prime Ministers a number of centuries ago might be uh... <laughs> On that very tuneful note we shall leave it there Thanks very much to Theresa, to Pat and to Jennifer for coming in today And that's it for today's podcast Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon Remember you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be Do leave a review It helps us to get us out to a wider audience You can find us also at irishtimes.com slash podcasts and you can contact me by email at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. 